Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. This is Sean Garner with Deason, Garner, and Hanson, and this is Life, Death, and the Law. I'm in studio here with Adam Hanson and Cody Beeson. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. And we have a special guest on our show this morning, Dr. Steve Rubish. Good morning. Morning. So, Dr. Rubish is a longtime friend of the family. Um, I've, I've known him for 20 years, and I've known his family. Um, I, when I met my wife and uh, settled down here in Yuma, he was one that had been a friend of her family for a long time. I think you even removed her wisdom teeth. Yeah, I did that on a lot of the family, a lot of the Lundgreens and <laughs> others in town. So you, you've been in the community, mm-hmm. you've been serving as a dentist for a long time, and uh, your practice is well established. Um, what we want to talk about is your experience just over the past couple of years with COVID. We've all gone through this kind of backward, upside down world that uh, was presented in COVID. And uh, it's hard to know what was from the actual, what uh, issues arose from the disease and what was from government intervention and what was from just individuals overreacting or maybe not reacting enough. And so you got to experience COVID firsthand. I'd like to hear what your thoughts about the illness, how bad it was, the treatment, how good or bad it was, and what you thought may have been better if, if, if it had to be done again from both your perspective going in and uh, those that were around you, both from the government side and, and from the healthcare side. So tell us, when did you get COVID? Well, <clears throat> I actually uh, was practicing quite a while during the uh, time when COVID was really active. And uh, so I think we had, when the government stepped in and started doing things about COVID, uh, I can remember at that time um, when we... Pr- I practiced as a dentist here in town. You know, the government came in and shut us down. So there were two months there that they didn't allow us to see any patients other than emergency patients. And so I had my staff, which we had to go to shorter hours because uh, we didn't have any money coming in from doing any real production. All we were supposed to be doing is um, just emergency work on these patients. And when you've got a pretty high overhead and you've got a staff that you have to support, that's pretty hard to support all that when all you're seeing is emergencies and that's it. And I have a brother who's a dentist as well up in Utah, and I talked to him about, well, how did this affect you? And he said, well, we weren't supposed to see any patients, but in his case, he said that if patients came in with a broken tooth or a toothache, then he would do the crown on them or he would do the root canal or whatever they needed. Whereas I didn't do that here. So my business was a lot more hampered when you go to a, probably less than a quarter of your normal production. And then you've got the same overhead that you've always had in the past. So that was really hard for two months here until finally the state said, okay, you can start working on patients again and actually doing the work. And initially the, the narrative that we were being given was 
two weeks to slow the spread. That it was essentially at that time accepted that COVID was going to spread throughout the United States. We were not going to contain it at this point. We saw it being spread all throughout China, all throughout Europe, and um, it was spreading quickly in the United States. And they said, we're only going to shut down for two weeks. And then it became three and then four and then two months. And I don't really remember when they actually said, okay, well, we're going to lift the restrictions. But this whole essential worker thing became a new term of art that we all started looking into. Am I an essential worker? Because it's essential for me to go to work in order to support my family. That's pretty essential to me. So for us to be able to define who's essential and who's not, typically um, that would be left up in a free country to the individuals that uh, own the property and, and, and the method of production. But uh, the government took it upon themselves to determine who was essential. And, uh, you know, if you're tubing down river, that's not essential. If you own a gym, apparently that's not essential. If you own a nail salon, that's not essential. But there were other things that were essential that didn't really make sense either. And, you know, I've got several friends, and including my brother, who's also a dentist, and they had to go through and, and decide for themselves how, what is essential. I mean, people don't go to the dentist most of the time because they want to. <laughs> they go to the dentist because they need dental care. They need medical care, and uh, their tooth is hurting, and they need some assistance. So um, you went back. How long were you either on you say a quarter of, of your production? Well, that was two months that we were shut down by the state. And I don't know if you remember at that time, I mean, they were telling us, we were getting all these information from supposedly the people that knew the science. Yeah. And they were telling us that, well, when you have a high speed handpiece in your mouth, that's going to aerosolize all of that stuff from saliva and that. So it's going to spread the COVID all over the place. So that's why they shut us down. They didn't want us using that high-speed handpiece that puts that, and we all knew that it makes a, an aerosol when you use that high-speed handpiece. And so they were giving us all this gloom and doom about how dangerous that was going to be, and everybody was going to get COVID from the handpieces. So that's why they shut us down. But when you look at what actually happened afterwards, um, nationwide in all the dental offices all over the whole United States, thousands and thousands of them, they never had one case of COVID that was ever confirmed to be caught in a dental office doing dental procedures. So all of that stuff they made us live by was just what they told us was going to happen, and it didn't turn out to be true at all. So, so we were shut down for two months that we couldn't use our hand pieces, basically. And, and we've seen this, that the science keeps changing during COVID. Science changes over periods of time, you know, over centuries. We, we go from understanding the earth is flat to it's round. We understand that the earth doesn't, um, is not the center of the universe. And, but it, it takes long periods of time, and then we, we evolve and understand science better. But it seems like we got past that era where the science was controlled by government or controlled by the church in determining what we got to understand and what the evidence told us so we could think for ourselves and develop our own theories and people could put that into practice and, and determine for themselves what the science was. And therefore, if they felt the vitamin helped them 
be a little bit healthier. They take vitamins. If they felt like getting up and working out would make them healthier, they would do that. But the government wouldn't intervene and say, this is the diet you must have, and this is the exercise regime you must have. But during the COVID scenario, we did see that. It was, do not go outside, stay put in your house. And um, so everybody's staying inside, not getting exercise, and watching Netflix and ordering from Uber Eats. And um, it turns out that COVID is more dangerous when you're sedentary. And you you went through it firsthand. So it, tell us what your experience was when you, how you contracted it, if you even know how it occurred, and, and what that uh, process looked like for you from start to finish. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I was in pretty good shape beforehand, and I think that's why I was able to survive this. I had some other friends that we used to ride bikes in the morning, and I'd go out at 15 after 5, and we'd ride till... Uh, when I'd get back home at 7 o'clock, and we did 20 to 25 miles uh, four to five days a week. And so I was in pretty good shape as far as doing that. But um, And I think that helped a lot with me. Um, I had a time when um, I went to uh, visit over Christmas, and this was, of, I think, probably in 2021 is when a lot of this big push as far as doing all the stuff and when we all had to be mandated to wear masks all the time and and all of that um uh, the first part of 2021 and and i went back to visit uh with my family a lot of them lived back in arkansas um before christmas of 2021 and when i was back there i guess someone in my family group had covid and they spread it around all of us when we were uh, back there visiting for Christmas. So it was just a family gathering. Yeah, it was a family gathering um, back there. At least I think it was that because we, we had gone to a big resort called Big Cedar back there uh, just south of Branson. And so it might have been while we were at that uh, place as well. I don't know. But anyway, some other members of my family had COVID, had come down with COVID, and I didn't really feel like I was symptomatic but uh, I went and got tested, and they said that I was uh, positive for COVID. So when I got back to Yuma from Arkansas, I went uh, to a doctor's office over by the hospital. And this was on about the 3rd of January of 2022. And um, I wanted to get one of the... Um, antibody infusions, which I'd heard is very beneficial to be able to fight COVID, where they take antibodies from people who've had it, and then they put that into your system to give you the antibodies that they developed. And when I went in there, they did uh, a test of your oxygenation of your blood, which they call pulse oximetry, and and I was only at uh, like 84%. And normally... Um, your oxygenation level will be 95 to 98%. So they said, well, that's too low. We can't even give you this uh, um, infusion. And so they wanted me to go over to the hospital right then and there. And I drove to their office. It was across the street from the hospital. And they didn't want me to even get up. And I said, listen, I can walk across the street if you want me to go to the hospital. They had to bring the um, people over 
pull out a gurney and put me on the gurney and carry me across the street, which of course cost five to $7,000 just to go across the street to the hospital. And then I'm in the emergency room over there. And, and that's when I started my treatment for COVID is from that time on. So they, uh, they basically uh, put you on a, to start out with a, a mask um, and then they uh, force a lot of oxygen into your system. I was uh, breathing probably 20 liters a minute of oxygen that they're uh, having you breathe. And that's, that's pure oxygen, whereas, you know, our normal room air has uh, 20 to 24% oxygen somewhere around there. But this is using their 100% oxygen that they're having you do to try to get your oxygen levels in your body back up. And so that's uh, the main thing that they were trying to do. And I was in the hospital during that time, laying in the bed and having these different masks that they put on to be able to force you to breathe this oxygen. And uh, uh, when you're in bed and, and laying there, I'm thinking, well, gosh, if you're sitting here, what's happening to all your muscles that you're not using? They're atrophying the whole time. And, and so I was trying to get the nurses to let me get up out of bed and go use the restroom. And they wouldn't allow that. And I said, well, why not? I can walk. Oh, no, we're afraid you might fall down. And it's not exactly like just going to the restroom we consider on a daily basis to be really an exercise. That, that, that's, that's, that's not uh, something that's going to really help our, our cardiovascular. But it does in, in the sense where you're just laying in bed all day. You've got to get up and do something. We know that astronauts, they go up into space. They have to do some exercises. Otherwise... They have heart issues, they have lung issues, and they have much muscle atrophy. Yeah. So you've got to get up in general and, and exercise, but just even to get up to go to the bathroom would at least maintain some type of muscle tone, and, and, and it would seem like it would help with your the, the breathing exercises, to breathe on your own and to be able to determine if you can maintain... Um, a stable oxygen level, making it from your bed to 10 feet away to the bathroom. Well, the doctors all know that, you know, if you don't use muscles, that they start that atrophy process almost immediately. I mean, the doctors know that if you have an injury, and let's say you have an injury, and um, a lot of times this happens with back injuries, and the nerves that supply the muscles in your legs, they might be pinched in that injury, and you lose motor control of the muscles in your legs. And so they immediately start atrophying. So what they will do to, comp uh, to counteract that is they'll put electrical stimulators on those muscles to cause them to contract on their own. And, and so they can do that so that the muscles will actually work. But if you don't have a nervous control to those muscles, they are eventually going to, to atrophy. And you're going to lose the, the use of those muscles. Now, the biggest concern, from what I understand, uh, is the, the effect that it's having on your lungs initially. That, that, that's the primary concern. So, obviously, when we're getting up and, and being physically active, we're working out our lungs. And if you're not able to get up on your own, then your lungs are one of the things that are really not being 
exercised and, and I don't know if they atrophy. Would you would you classify it as an atrophying of the lungs or would is it just not using them as much doesn't uh, compel them to to work at their full potential? Well, and I think that's a lot of it. I know when I was riding the bike all the time and, you know, you have to use your lungs a lot. If you don't breathe right, well, then you just basically you can't keep going on. And people know that when they run and they get real tired, then you stop and you start panting and you do more, uh, bring more oxygen into your lungs to be able to do that. But when you're laying there in bed, you don't really have that chance to do that. And uh, the interesting thing is that I found out later when I started working with a pulmonologist um, that they took x-rays of my lungs and the upper 20% of my lungs I had lost all the alveoli, which are the small little, um, um, they're the areas where the, the oxygen is transferred into your blood vessels. All those little fine blood vessels are in those alveoli. And all those alveoli just disappeared in that upper 20% of my lung on either side. Which kind of makes sense. You don't use it, you lose it. No, that it works with anything. That's what happened. And so I just have just, big air cells up there. And I asked him, well, is this ever going to come back? And he said, well, we don't really know. Right now, we haven't seen anything that says that it does come back. So in the Hippocratic Oath, the first rule is, above all else, do no harm. Yeah. And uh, so we know that that harm is occurring, but we don't know if it's actually going to get better or if the cure is worse than the disease itself. We have to take a break. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is 560 AM, KBLU, Life, Death, and Law. I'm Sean Garner in studio. We're here with Adam Hansen, Cody Beeson, and our guest, Dr. Stephen Rubish. Uh, he's explaining his experience with COVID. And many of you may be thinking, well, why are we still talking about COVID? Are, are we beating a dead horse? Is this something that is just so talked about and overanalyzed that we just need to move on? I think it's a really important issue to discuss still because we know that uh, the virus is mutating and uh, there are going to be waves of it coming through again and we're going we're still being faced with the question to vaccine or not vaccine and so this question is to what method of treatment do we use to have the best possibility of making it through the disease or the virus um, with the best chance of success is really important. It's just as important today as it was from the beginning. The difference is we know a lot more today than we did initially. And so, Dr. Rubish, you were um, explaining at the end of our last segment your discussion with the doctor about the damage that had occurred to your lungs as a result of being on oxygen. Yes, well, that's, you know, I don't know whether it's that or the, the fact that the COVID virus itself causes some of that damage to the lungs. We don't okay. really know that. I mean, there are so many other things that happens during that time. You know, your body is used to getting up and moving around. And when it doesn't, the other thing that happens is you start developing more 
arterial plaques and other things like that, which form. And um, I had a, a situation where um, when I was working with the pulmonologist, they, they check your circulation to different parts of your body. So you know how you get your blood pre- pressure uh, tested and they put the cuff around your arm? Well, they put the cuffs around both of my arms to see whether there's a difference in one side or the other. Then they also do it in your legs. And what they found in my case that uh, my left leg had a lot uh, lower blood pressure than what I had in my right leg. So then when they did an MRI, they saw that I was developing plaques down uh, the vessels on my left leg. So I ended up having to go and have them do uh, a procedure where they go in there and they just basically go into the vessels and, and clean out all that stuff down in the blood vessel. That, that sounds like a pretty intrusive procedure. Well, it is. They, they kind of put you out for that and then they make an incision up there and then run this catheter down into your leg that uh, does all that. And then it sucks up the stuff that they're taking out of there. Um, but, but that was something that I had done on my left leg. And then when we checked it afterwards, then the blood pressures in both legs were the same. Um, but during that time, um, the blood supply on my left leg was short enough that I, or, or decreased enough that I started having my big toe on my left foot starting to turn black. And they call that COVID toe. And a lot of times they will see that in diabetics where they have a problem with circulation that doesn't get to the extremities. So they were asking me if I was diabetic. I said, no, I'm not diabetic. So it didn't have anything to do with diabetes, but it had to do with the blood flow and the decrease of it on that one side. In, and In uh, retrospect, could, could that have been prevented if you, if you were to go through that again? What would you do, if anything, to prevent that COVID toe that you ended up with? Well, and I think a lot of that was the fact that I was sedentary and not moving around. So who knows, you know, whether that was something that was caused by that or not. But anyway, it ended up going to a stage where my big toe on my left foot just turned completely black. Then I got gangrene in that toe, and then they had to amputate the big toe on my left foot. So that was all from this same thing. Wow. So I don't have a, a big toe on my left foot. And uh, they wanted to take the other toe, which had started take, to turn black. But I said, no, it's, it's still on there. I think it's coming back. And it did come back. And so I still have the other toe. But So in retrospect, if you were to go through and, and get diagnosed the way you were before, what would you have done differently? And do you think if you had acted differently or known what you know now, would, would you still have your big toe? Well, I think I probably would still have my big toe now. I mean, you know, you, you can look at this after the fact and, and uh, wish about what you had done, had done, and whatever else. But I was in the hospital here in Yuma from that uh, January 3rd or 4th all the way through January all the way through February. And then when we got into March, the doctors, um, who my kids have been calling to try to figure out, you know, what condition was I in? And the doctors told them uh, the, about the 
just after the first week in March, they said, well, if you want to see him alive, you better come down here to see him because we don't think he's going to last more than another, another five days to a week or so. And so my kids all started coming down to see me. And uh, when they were down here to see me, I told them, listen, they haven't done one bit of physical therapy or anything the whole time I've been in here, which is, you know, two and a half months now. And if I stay here in this condition, I am going to be dead. And so I had asked them to try to get me transferred out of the hospital here. And um, before I went into the hospital for COVID, uh, the year before, my wife had passed away from a brain tumor. And we ended up taking her back to Arkansas um, after she was recovering from the surgery she had for that. And uh, their hospital system treated her very well back there. So I told them, you take me back to Arkansas where all of you kids are around that you can watch me because I have nobody here and nobody that's fighting for me uh, in the hospital here. So when the... Uh, my kids talked to the doctors here about that. The doctors told them, well, you could have him sent back there to Arkansas, but then you're going to pay the cost to send him back there, and he's going to die anyway. So they were telling them they're better off just leaving me here and, and not worrying about going back there. And I told them, no, I want you to take me back there. So we checked with my insurance. The insurance wouldn't pay uh, for me to be air flighted back to Arkansas and um, Medicare wouldn't pay for it. And so the only way I was going to be able to get there is if I had to pay for it myself. So I told my kids, you take the money out of my bank account and pay for me to be air flighted back there. So that's what they decided to do. So we set up with a hospital back in Arkansas to get me when I got there but it cost me about $27,000 to be air flighted back to Arkansas. Now, what systems and medical equipment and knowledge do they have in Arkansas that they don't have here in New Arizona? I know that we are not, we don't have the Mayo Clinic and we're not the pinnacle of leading research in the medical field, but we have a pretty good, well-funded hospital. So I don't understand why a hospital in Arkansas has better facility and better ability to assist you than here in Yuma. Well, and the thing was is that I knew uh, from when I went back there, uh, my wife ended up passing away back there, and I was visiting her in the hospital there when this happened. Um, and their treatment for COVID and that uh, included doing physical therapy with those patients almost every day. So I saw what they were doing with the patients, which was different from what they were doing here. And I knew that was going to be a benefit for me. And that's why I decided to go back there instead of staying here. And why I told them that, yeah, I'm going to have a chance back there because I saw they're treating it differently there than what they were here. It seems a little bit overly simplified. I mean, we, when, you're, when you want your lungs to work, you work out. You do cardio workouts. You, you get to the point that you're gasping for air and your lungs are burning and that expands your lung capacity. And we all know that if we're going on a run and it's the first time in a long time, the first thing you feel is maybe other than your legs burning, your lungs burning. And uh, so it, it, it wasn't the medical expertise necessarily or the equipment. 
it was just the simplest thing, the yeah. getting up and working out a little bit. So, Because physical therapy, what is physical therapy other than a basic workout? No, and that's basically what you would do. They'd work in and you'd do exercises and things like that. But I think the other thing that's different with Yuma than what I had over there in Arkansas is the fact that you have to realize that when I went into the hospital, this was in January. And what happens in January here in Yuma? That's when all these winter visitors come in. And that was the problem with the hospital, that they were just swamped with all these winter visitors coming in. They didn't have that problem back in Arkansas. They're not treating with this winter influx of of patients. And I noticed on our COVID floor where I was sitting there, they had two nurses to cover over 20 patients. And so, I mean, you couldn't get the type of care that you can do. And, And I think that's all having to do with the economics of it, too. They didn't hire enough additional nurses to be able to cover that uh, overflow of patients during the wintertime when all those winter visitors are there in town. Uh-huh. And so it's an economic type thing where the hospital just says, well, we don't have enough money to, to hire 10 new nurses to come in here just for this period of time, unfortunately. And that wasn't a problem that we had back in Arkansas when I was there. They're not dealing with that big fluctuation between summertime and wintertime. There's also the issue um, of that we're a border town, mm-hmm. and we have anywhere between 500 and 1,500 uh, immigrants crossing the border just 15 miles away from the hospital. Do you think that had any impact on um, the workload that the nurses had to deal with? Well, I'm sure it did because of the fact that when you've got more patients coming in, uh, that wasn't a problem Where I went is up in northwest Arkansas by Rogers in that area. And uh, so I went to two different rehab hospitals up there in that that area. And uh, I stayed in one for a little over three weeks and another one in in a little over three weeks as well and got treatment on those. And I had recovered well enough during that period of time that I was then able to go to my sister-in-law's house where she could take care of me, where she had a room set aside in her house. And I stayed in her house for another uh, about a month and a half or so before I was well enough that I was then able to come back to Yuma. So it was staying in your in-law's home where you were actually able to truly recover. It wasn't in an actual facility. Yes. And, and I had, when I got it out of the hospital, I was on about seven liters a minute of oxygen. So everywhere I had to go, I had to have a, an oxygen tank there with me. And they put me in a wheelchair originally because I was so weakened. When I left uh, the Yuma Hospital, I went in in January weighing 212 pounds. And cycling 25 miles a day yeah and that was before that and i hadn't done a lot of cycling for the six months before that because that was because my wife was going through all that stuff with with her brain tumor and that and uh so i didn't cycle as often then so i was probably not doing it as much then but when i um went into the hospital i weighed 212 pounds and when i left the hospital in the middle of march I weighed less than 170 pounds. So I had lost, I probably would estimate 30% of my muscle mass throughout my whole body. And I looked at myself, I didn't even recognize my body anymore. 
I looked like I was a survivor from Auschwitz or one of these concentration camps. And how, I was, how did you feel when you were in the hospital? I know that I've gone in there for certain procedures, and the doctor, I mean, they call all the shots. The doctors and nurses tell you what to do, and, and you do it, and sometimes you feel like you don't have much of a choice. Now, as an attorney, um, I defer nearly 100% of, of, of the discretionary decisions to them because they've got the medical background and they understand what they're doing. Although, uh, again, as an attorney, I'm apt to question everything that happens and say, well, okay, explain to me why I'm doing this and why I can't do that. Did you experience that type of scenario, being a doctor and, and understanding the basic biology and also medical protocols that typically occur, did you ever disagree with um, the protocols that were being administered and, and, and express that and have any type of pushback? Well, and, and that's what I'm saying is that when I talked to them, I wanted to let them get me or allow me to get up and get out of bed and walk around and, and do the other stuff. And, and uh, the other thing that was harder for me is the fact that if I went to the bathroom, if you did a number two, they had to come over with a bedpan, kind of arch you up to put that bedpan underneath you. And I said, this this was ridiculous. It would be so much easier. Just put a little potty chair there next to the bed. I'll get out of bed, stand up, sit on the potty chair, go to the bathroom, then get back in the bed. That's all I want you to do. And they wouldn't even allow that. Why is that? Well, that's because they said they were afraid I was going to fall down. That was their explanation for that. So, I mean, that's why... Because I, they couldn't be there while you were there to assist you in doing it because they're short-staffed? or Yeah, because I think it's, it's partially that, where they had so little staff. I'll tell you one example is during that time when they told me that I was going to pass away very shortly, my brother came down to see me, and he's a dentist as well from up in in Utah. And he went down there to visit me. And of course they have a nurse that's there on the floor and he wanted to come and see me. And they said, well, you have to wait here for a minute and we'll let you go over and see him. And while I'm sitting there, uh, this mask that I had on was uncomfortable. And so I was taking it off so I could get, uh, to breathe around the side of it. And my brother is sitting there, and when I took that mask off, the alarm started going off at the nurse's station because they have an alarm that's there when the mask, if the patient takes it off, and it was going off, beeping, and my brother's wondering, well, what's this nurse doing here at this station? This alarm is going off, and he, looks, she, he looked over at me, and he said um, to the nurse, is he supposed to have that mask down around his neck like that? And she said, oh, no. And then she got up and went over and put my mask back on. And when the mask went back on, the alarm and the beeping went off. So my brother was there to see that happen when I was there. And there were many times when, you know, I'd raise my hand, have the nurse try to have the nurse come over to see me, and it would be another four or five minutes before they'd come over. And by that time, it was a a matter of the nurses then having to change my diaper Uh because I— hadn't been able to hold it long enough. And so it, it was just 
a lot of things about that was frustrating to so me. So the, the human dignity part of it is kind of out the window. But when we're yeah. talking about survival, of course we want to put things in order of priority. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about if you were to experience this again, do you think there would be a different outcome? And if so, what would contribute to that? So this is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back. This is Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner with Deason, Garner, and Hanson in studio with Adam Hanson, Cody Beeson, and our special guest, Dr. Stephen Rubish. He's explaining his experience with COVID. And uh, take us back. You, you uh, went into the hospital and were diagnosed with COVID in 2022 in January. So we've already experienced about two years of dealing with COVID by the time that you were diagnosed and being treated. Um, go ahead and tell us about the treatment that you received, what was the outcome, and what would you do differently if you had to do it again? Well, I think, you know, because of this COVID having such a big scare factor and the hospitals had pretty much control over whoever could come into the the uh, uh, rooms to be able to visit people who had COVID, they were only allowing one person at a time to come in uh, to see you. And of course, at that time, I was here in Yuma and all of my relatives, I have five kids and uh, four of the five live in Northwest Arkansas and other ones in Indiana. So there was nobody here in town uh, and my wife had passed away um, uh, six months before I went into the hospital for COVID. So there was nobody here to really visit me other than, than friends that I had. And uh, when the doctors uh, told my kids that they didn't think I was going to last much longer. Then some of them, uh, well, pretty much all of them came down to visit me here. And that's when I had told them that I, I want to get out of Yuma um, because I wasn't getting, I didn't feel like I was getting the treatment that was allowing me to recover. And I don't know, the, the hospital... Um, was not staffed sufficiently for the number of people that they had in the hospital for COVID at that time. And the treatments that they had here in Yuma included no physical therapy or even allowing the patients to get out of bed or move around. And that was the biggest thing that I had um, a disagreement with, but that's not something that I had any ability to control. They, They weren't allowing any of us to move around at all. Um, my kids did listen to what I said, though, to allow me to get out of Yuma and to go to Arkansas, where I knew that uh, they were allowing physical therapy there. If you if you had to do it again, because it's going to happen again, we're, go, COVID's going to come back, and uh, we're going to get diagnosed with it again, and people are going to be faced with the decision that you were faced with. If you had to do it again, what would you do? Well, I, I think the, the problem is the fact that you don't have a lot of choice in some of these cases. And 
So I would probably be looking around for other alternatives that you have for that treatment. Would you go to the emergency room? Well, the emergency room... Or the hospital in general? uh, I would probably... You know, if I think about what had happened to me where they pretty much forced me to go to the emergency room when I went to get this infusion and I walked into the hospital... I would have said, well, listen, I walked into the hospital. I'm well able to walk out of the hospital because I don't feel any differently now than what I do, than what I I did after I got there. 15 minutes earlier. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, I had that option to go over and and, uh, admit myself to the hospital. I could have saved myself over $7,500 by walking over there myself across the street. But, you know, other than that, I don't know whether I'd had a whole lot of, uh, you know, choices because you still rely a lot on what your medical personnel say that you should do. In my dental office, I did a lot of sedation where we would give people uh, something to uh, allow us to do work more comfortably on them. And that slows their breathing rate and everything else. So we put them on uh, an oxygen supplement. And then we have a pulse oximeter that we have on their finger the whole time that they're under sedation. So we know what their pulse oxygenation level is. And I would get pretty excited when we were working on those patients if they ever dropped below 95% on their uh, pulse oxygenation. So I've got those machines at home. I could have had my own oxygen and put my pulse oximeter on to make sure that my pulse oxygenation levels were high enough. Uh So that's something that I could have done on my own. Um, I ended up, when I went to live in my uh, sister-in-law's place when I came out of the hospital, we bought one of these large um, oxygen generators. And, And you've probably seen people walking around that have... Uh, some form of um, decreased lung capacity that have the little machine and they've got a nasal cannula with a tube coming from this little machine that gives them portable oxygen wherever they go. So I had one of those portable machines that I used after I got out of the hospital, but I had a bigger one that we had in my sister-in-law's house and I had about 150 feet of line from that going to my nasal cannula. So I could walk around the house anywhere I wanted to go and have that oxygen that I was breathing during that time. And so they were telling me pretty much that I was going to have to be on this oxygen for the rest of my life after the damage that I had had, uh, sustained during that time. Um, But I'll tell you that I started to go off of the oxygen on my own when I was walking around and I'd wear my little pulse oximeter, and I was still staying uh, about 94% or somewhere around there, which is acceptable. And uh, so I gradually weaned myself off of using the constant oxygen. And even right now, what I do is I have one of those little oxygen generators, and I put the nasal cannula on, and I breathe that at night when I'm asleep. And that's partially because I have a little bit of sleep apnea where sometimes I don't breathe constantly. 
But with that nasal cannula in there, it makes my oxygen levels high enough. And it has a little alarm that if I stop breathing through my nose, that that alarm beeps and it wakes me up again. And then I can start using it like what I'm supposed to. Well, thank you for coming on our show. Any any parting remarks for anybody that encounters this in the future? And, and just last comments as to what their first resort would be and seeking medical attention or, or addressing COVID in general? Well, and I think you have to look at the same things that, that affected me the most. You know, if I had been able to do uh, more physical work or moving around, I wouldn't have had the atrophy that I had. Your body naturally is going to break down muscle because the muscle breakdown gives your body all of the things that it needs to keep your organ systems working. So your body uses the muscles as fuel to be able to run your body when the rest of the things aren't working like what they're supposed to. So I think that's very essential to be able to have that ability to physically move around and keep your body functioning and working during this time, even if you're being treated for COVID. So that's one of the biggest things that I would take out of what's happened to me. Well, I appreciate you sharing your experience with us. And uh, I'm glad that you recovered. I'm glad to see that you're, you're upright and alive and got a lot of life ahead of you. Well, and during the day, like right now, I'm walking around without having to wear one of those oxygen generators. So yeah. that's a, it's telling me that I am actually healing and getting better. Good. Glad to see it. Thanks again. That's all the time that we have for today. This is 560 AM, KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.